Welcome to Danger Zone. Just kidding. It is History in Whiskey, my friends, episode two. Today we are covering Top Gun. I am John Cole. With me, Justin Raditz, and very special guest, my own father, Barry Cole. How are you, gentlemen? Doing well. Good. I wish I would have remembered or even thought of wearing my aviators. Oh, baby. I was prepared. I think, I, I think this is what they meant when they, what they intended when they wrote that song, I Wear My Sunglasses at Night. That's right. You're living it. I'm living it right now. You found uh, the appropriate moment. I did. <laughs> well, I'm going to tell you, eventually we're going to do a show about whiskey, not just history. Uh, but uh, today we're still sticking with mostly history, but I am drinking a little whiskey. Um, I have uh, a little... Uh, Beer barrel bourbon from our friends at New How and Brewery and Distillery, right here in Michigan. I am uh, revisiting my friends at Redbreast. Uh, Indeed. And, and Dad, are you cheersing us in spirit? Cheers. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. Well, my friends, I don't know that you'll be shocked by this, but I stayed up very late last night watching Top Gun so I could be prepared for my historical uh, input into As today's episode. Do. Yes, I did a, a very vigorous research into the topic. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, it was a, it's an excellent movie. I, I still cried. I still cried when, uh, when Maverick went into the room to give uh, Meg Ryan a hug and their kids sitting at the chair. I, the tears rolled. The tears rolled. It's a tough scene to get through. It's a tough scene. It's uh, How long since you've seen that movie, Dan? Oh, it's probably been 10 years since I've seen it. Well, uh, Top Gun 2 is coming. Um, That's right. In uh, just a couple of months. supposed to come last summer. But... Oh, that's right. I believe it comes out uh, July 4th week, even somewhere in yeah. that range. Oh. Yeah. So I'm pretty excited for it. So um, my dad actually uh, had decided that that was kind of a fun topic with the new movie coming out. And um, uh, few of you know, because I don't talk about history much, <laughs> shocker, being a host of a history show. But uh, my father was actually stationed in Myanmar during the final years of uh, Vietnam. And so he kind of wanted to talk about this and uh, Justin, um, I often forget you also were in the Navy and in fact did a tour on the USS Enterprise, which was famously uh, part of the Top Gun movie, though maybe not really the Top Gun history. Uh, well, it is Top Gun history now, thanks to that movie, in terms of its help in bringing the Navy back up in its enlistment quotas. Hmm. I think. I yeah, think I saw Enterprise. something um, shortly after the movie uh, released that they had a 500% increase of applications into the Naval Air Force or the Naval yeah. Air uh, Corps. I don't believe the USS Enterprise received so many offers to serve specifically to that ship since Star Trek The Motion Picture came out. <laughs> so, and it was a very different crowd that they were expecting at that time. I can't imagine. Well, we will get into that shortly, but of course, we are broadcasting on iLogic Media. Uh, please check us out, iLogicMedia.com. My friend Mark and I started this in January, and we've got quite an eclectic group of shows, including cooking shows, sports shows, history shows, soon to be a horror uh, film. I've got a guy starting. What do you think of that, Justin? I love it. I can't wait yeah. to watch that one. I like it. It's going to be very, very entertaining. So, 
Justin, set us up. Tell us what was going on with the, the, the history of the early years before Top Gun uh, Program Academy. That wasn't the real name, of course. It wasn't called the Top Gun Program, but um, lead us up to it, would you? Well, after Korea, we invented jets and uh, we, uh, we were able to determine that with the incredible speeds of the Sabre and the MiG-15 and 13 that we didn't need the age of dogfighting was over. In fact, when the A-4 was developed for the Vietnam War some 10 or 15 years later, or if not, no, yeah, 10 or 15 years later, um, the Air Force wanted a gun, but the Navy said, we don't need it. We'll just shove more Sparrow missiles on it. And uh, it seemed to do, for the most part, okay until we had a friendly fire incident in the late 60s in which two American... Uh, aircraft were lost, which due to that loss, the rules of engagement changed from uh, a, from a strategy of we're going to shoot you before you can see us to we literally have to see you with our eyes to identify you before we can shoot you down, which uh, complicated things. Uh, pretty soon after that, we learned that uh, our Sparrow missiles weren't very good if we didn't have enough space to shoot them. Uh, we learned that we weren't doing a very good job with our missiles. Uh, this all came to came to light from the Alt Report, uh, captain of an aircraft carrier, uh, kind of put in a bunch of recommendations to the point where they said, well, then you fix it. One of the many things that came out of, of this was a request for additional and specialized dogfighting training so that our A-4 that wasn't necessarily designed for dogfighting, that our pilots might have uh, an ability to, to level up against the maneuvers that they were being thrown from the from the Soviets and from the North Koreans. But does that feel right, Barry? Uh, yes. Do you want to expand on anything? Well, the strategy with uh, F-4 when it was under development was it was going to be an interceptor of the uh, Soviet nuclear uh, carrying nuclear bombs and that they would shoot them down uh, over the horizon. And uh, that's not the kind of threat that we ran into, of course, in Vietnam. So, uh, yeah, there was a lot of scrambling going on. You know, uh, why were they, why were they not doing so well in combat? And um, there was a period during the Vietnam war when they decided they were going to stop the, the bombing for a few years to see if they could, do more negotiating, I guess, in Vietnam. So there's like a, a lull after the first two or three years of air combat where they didn't have a lot of combat. And there was a study done uh, at that time, and uh, it was by a captain called Alt, and it's the Alt Report, and recommending that there be some kind of uh, tactical school created uh, to, to basically relearn the, the skills that were lost after uh, World War II um, where dogfighting was, uh, of course, very prevalent. So uh, it's basically Top Gun's, a, you know, a dogfighting school. Barry, what kind of what were the aircraft that uh, the Americans were faced up against uh, on the Soviet side or on the North or North uh, Vietnamese side? And well, there were, were uh, uh, the MiGs that were Soviet built, and the Vietnam, North Vietnamese pilots were trained by the Soviets. And um, they 
they were not incredibly fast compared to the, the F4s. Um, and you would think that, uh, you know, a, a high speed, if you could go twice as fast as the fighters that you're up against, that would be a big um, advantage. But the fact is, uh, when you're in a dogfight, you're, you're close. Uh, you're making a lot of quick turns. And if you can equate, you know, to get, a, get an idea of that, if you, if you get out on the expressway and you can go twice as fast as anybody, that's great. But a dogfight is not expressway. It's that curve that's coming up. It's 55 miles an hour. Now you got a curve that's 35. What are you going to have to do? You have to Ooh. slow down to make that curve. And although they were Vietnamese pilots and they were flying jets that, that uh, didn't have a lot of the, the, the qualities and speed of the F-4s, um, when you get into dogfights, maneuverability is the key, and the F-4 is not that maneuverable when you compare them to those smaller, lighter, less armed jets that the North Vietnamese were flying. Um, some of them didn't carry missiles. The earlier models, uh, they didn't have missiles. They had cannons, and, uh, you know, they could they could throw an 81-pound piece of lead at a, an F-4, and that's going to take it down at those speeds. It's a lot cheaper than a missile. A lot, a lot cheaper, and um, you know, if you, if you got the flighting skill, you can you can pull the trigger and fire a cannon if it's you know the jet's right in front of you. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I think anybody that went in underestimating those MiG jets that weren't really state of the art uh, wouldn't wouldn't be in the air very long. I can imagine there'd be a problem not having the the machine guns, the cannons on there. I mean, you run out of missiles, then you're just kind of a dead weight in the sky. Well, the Air Force that also bought a lot of F-4s, uh, after a couple of years, they convinced the, the powers and uh, the Air Force uh, to put a, put a cannon or a machine gun. Uh, Did they both not come with cannons? Uh, correct. Oh, wow. Well, I didn't the know Air that. Force, you know, they retrofitted them. Mm. And they had a I believe they had machine gun pods they could carry, you know, attached to the bottom of the plane. But mm -hmm. the Navy, Navy never did that, and the pilots screamed and hollered for them. But, you know, hmm. through the whole war, actually, you know, as long as they flew the F-4, which was for 30 years or more. Mm -hmm. the Navy, yeah. And, uh, Dad, I have this slideshow you sent me. When you want it up there, let me know. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you think it'd be a good? Do you, do you think we should show it now? Is this well, a good sure, time? Yeah. There, you should have a couple pictures of the. Uh, All right. Are these Hellcats? Well, the Hellcats—they uh, were Navy fighters, mostly in the Pacific, and um, they were very successful in dogfighting. Um, there was about uh, forty percent of enemy aircraft were destroyed by the Hellcats. Wow. And um, oh their, their kill ratio in the, the Japanese sector was 42 to 1. Mm. Uh, they shot down 40, 42 Hellcats or 42 Zeros and Mitsubishis for every one that uh, they lost uh, U.S. planes. But l later in the war, after they had uh, lost, a the Japanese had lost a couple of Aircraft carriers, they're experienced pilots. Uh, they lost a lot of experienced pilots. And they, 
they gave, you know, if you could take off, they sent you into the war. So they didn't have the experience. They didn't have the dog fighting skills. And, uh, you know, a lot of those kills that they made were just kind of, you know, you've heard the term turkey shoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, yeah, in, in, the, in the, new, the new age, they didn't think they were going to be doing a lot of dog fighting. So... So this this is this is towards the end of World War II here. All right. There we go. This is Korean War era F-86 Saber. Correct. Yep. Right. And um, this is what we designed after observing the swept wing MiG-13 and MiG-15. Correct. Yep. Swept right. wing. Uh, Again, machine guns, cannons, not much in the way of missiles yet. The technology yeah. wasn't there. It wasn't there in the, in the uh, Korean War. Now, Barry, I, I oh, whoa, what, what's this? This looks, is this a trainer of? Uh... Uh, this is a MiG-15. Oh, okay. Oh, well. And, uh, you know, it's just, that one is a Soviet one, but. Uh, yeah. This, that's definitely an A4. That's a big boy. Yep. This is, uh, you know, this one's at uh, Miramar. Oh, wow. Where Top Gun uh, was created. And this is their uh, Sparrow missile. And this was designed to bring down uh, Soviet bombers over the horizon um, in the uh, in the training for pilots before they went out to the fleet, uh, they said all they had to do was uh, aim that missile. If they were off by 30 degrees or so, it should be able to uh, find its target. It, oh, my uh, gosh. It, it used radar, I think, son. Cheers. Did you get a beverage delivery? Uh, well, the clear one is not vodka. It has no. water. But all right. Fair. Still good. Yeah. So, so these were like you know miles out, they right? Sh- shooting this off but, on radar contact. But they didn't perform as promised. At thirty degrees, they found out <clears throat> in the Vietnam War that it, it was more like seven degrees. Uh, mm. you, could, you could be seven degrees off from having it right in front of you, and it would should still be able to seek it. That's a big uh, difference. It also would seek out. Um, it would also seek out the uh, enemy radar. So if they were using radar, it should be able to follow that beam to the jet. Um, if you use active radar, uh, people are going to know where you're at. Mm. So. Amazing. They're still in use. They're still in use today. They've been modified and modified and modified. So I mean, that's um, uh, that's a pretty big missile. Yeah, it's it's like ten feet long or something. It's <laughs> 10, 12 feet. Yeah, wow. I, I I came across this diagram. I always figured the warhead was in the front, but this diagram it shows that it's in the middle. Huh? Why would they put it in the middle? That for penetration yeah. before explosion? Uh, probably more because it it has electronics in front to find that uh, radar signal, and the radar. Must it's probably in front. Doesn't really matter. If you got that much explosive, it could be in the tail. Mm-hmm. Even if the explosive didn't hit, I mean, 
if you just got hit with this piece of, of metal, this 12-foot tube right. going in, that's going to that's gonna knock you out of the air anyway. So Yeah, even if it doesn't be a explode. a very large charge, actually. Yeah. Wow. Oh, fascinating. So, so this is a... This is one of our training squadrons. Uh, we train pilots and all the mechanics, all the specialties to keep them flying. And oh, uh, <clears throat> they went out over the desert. They have firing range, and they can fire missiles. This is a this is a Sparrow uh, that he just shot. Uh, Navy squadrons, each plane, each squadron has their own identification on the tail. You can see the NJ. Um, I guess that's because if you crash it, if there's a piece left over, it says NJ, at least you know what squadron it is. <laughs> <laughs> uh, interesting fact that I learned about the, the movie when I was kind of reading some behind the scenes last night. Um, apparently one of the uh, stunt pilots died on set. Um, uh, they, they were uh, executing a, a nose dive, a spinning dive for the camera, and he couldn't pull it out, crashed into the ocean oh, died no. during movie filming. Yeah, it's... Uh, <sighs> It's very dangerous flying jets that go very fast. Mm -hmm. I was just looking today, <clears throat> went back to Miramar, which is no longer a Navy base. It's a, a Marine helicopter base now. Uh, and read about all the crashes. There, there were eight or nine crashes over the life of uh, while the Navy was there. So, so it's actually, people, oh, go ahead, go ahead uh, It's north of San Diego, about 15 miles. And the the housing developments keep creeping in closer. And mm. there are three or four crashes that came down in those housing communities. Oh, uh, yeah. And they always complained about the sound, you know, these jets taking off. It's like, well, then why did you buy a house near a fighter jet airport? Yeah. There would be no sound. And now they got That's helicopters. Which, helicopters are just as bad or worse. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, it's... It says Top Gun on the side of the building there. I mean, they got to know. Uh, right. All right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was, and the other research I was reading is that they, um, you know, they got a lot of special permission to be on the Enterprise to um, the actors went up in actual uh, F-14s, right? What they were. Being Cruise, yeah. And, um, you know, all those actors got time in in the jets and, and got to really check it out. And they they spent a few days on the Enterprise and kind of live in the life of a, of a Navy pilot. Um, but they got a lot of special permission there, but then the Navy in turn actually had a lot of say in the movie as well. So um, the infamous scene when Goose dies, when trying to eject from the plane, was supposed to be a mid-air collision, and the Navy people are like, yeah, that doesn't really happen. So, yeah, you can't do that. So they had to come up with another reason why uh, Goose would die. Um, and then uh, Charlie, I forget her name. Um, uh, what's the actress's name, Justin? You would know that better than me. Uh, uh, the lady from... McGinnis? The what's the Amish movie with with Han Solo? The Witness. Oh gosh, yeah. So, it's anyways, um, uh, Ke Kelly McGinnis, Kelly, Kelly, is that right? Kelly sounds right. Yeah, I think so. Anyways, um, she uh, was supposed to be a lieutenant uh, in there, and the Navy was like, mm, Nah, you can't have uh, you know relations between two offices. You can't do that. So then they rewrote her role to be a uh, civilian um, uh, contractor instead of yeah. uh, a lieutenant. So yeah, the Navy had a lot of say in it and and how it was portrayed because they didn't want it to to come off as well. It was pretty inaccurate, anyways. But I guess it would have been wildly inaccurate if it weren't for a few of the things that they butted in. For in fact, it uh, there there was no Top Gun award. They didn't do that. That was definitely theatrics. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you got to make the story interesting. Right. Fun side note for Independence Day, the Navy was helping them with that movie for a while until they got the full script. And they said, listen, we'll keep helping you, but you can't mention Area 51 in your movie. And they're like, that's two thirds of the movie. They're like, yeah, so you need to change it or we're gone. And that's how we ended up with like Huey helicopters, F-16s and Marine F-18s at a Navy base outside of uh, Los Angeles somewhere or something like that. Just to, it, it got it was a little bit more inaccurate than Top Gun, but sure. <laughs> well, Dad, though the movie though the the F-14s at least were you know period correct, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. Because yeah. I know I've sat in movies with you and, and seen you pick up a book and start reading, and I say, "What's the problem?" You said, "Ah, that's not even the right plane. That's an army plane. That's not a navy plane." <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. So at least they got they got the period planes right, which is important, right? Very yeah. Let's pick up on the on the line, on the lineation here. So, like, it's 1969. Uh, the alt report is out, and I believe 69 is when they started the Top Gun program at Miramar. Except, if I remember correctly, like it wasn't big. They didn't have the whole base. They had like a Quonset hut and some tables and chairs. Uh, yeah. Well, exactly. It wasn't really a Quonset hut. It was actually a, a, an office trailer for uh, the construction company that was on base. Oh, wow. It was, it was pretty shabby. There's a picture of it <laughs> later on. It's pretty shabby. It's, it looks like a small, single-wide motorhome. Oh, my gosh. Somebody painted a sign and tacked it up on the roof above the door, and uh, they scrounged some uh, <clears throat> table desks and somebody had a desk, another desk, and and uh, they found a. Uh, they were given absolute, absolutely no budget when they were charged with coming up with this. They gave them no money, no facility to work in, so they're scrounging it out. Um, they to get the uh, the trailer over to the uh, hangar. Um, they bribed a heavy construction operator with a case of scotch to move <laughs> over. Another appropriate reason why we're talking about it here on Whiskey and History. Well, Whiskey yeah. had a part. But that tied in pretty well. <laughs> um, so uh, he, he got eight other pilots. Uh, these are the pilots at uh, VF-121 that were training the other pilots. And uh, he tasked them with uh, you know, they brainstormed and they they gave he gave each of the other eight pilots a particular area, and uh, they they created it and then they had to present it to the other eight, and uh. everybody critiqued it and they improved it. And one of the things they said, uh, Peterson, it was uh, Lieutenant Commander Dan Peterson that was tasked with this. He told them that. Uh, you, you're going to be lecturing and you're allowed no notes. Okay. You need to look them in the eye and you need to know your stuff so well that you don't need any notes whatsoever. And, and that's what they did. And oh my God. So these guys weren't trainers. They were pilots, right? They were pilots. Correct. So all- they didn't, if I know, if I know aviators, they're not patient and they don't have they don't have a natural guiding hand 
Did was it was it rocky at first? Uh, not that I know of. Uh, really? They knew what they were doing was extremely important. They were very uh, confident in each other and knew that they were highly skilled pilots and they were on a mission. They oh, were on yeah. a mission. And, uh, you know, then they would they'd all go out and fly together. Amazing. And, uh, eventually, uh, they were doing the flying around, uh, you know, the they take off from Miramar and do their flying and come back to Miramar. Uh, but they went out to uh, Nevada. And after the program was going on for uh, four or five years, uh, they went out to Nevada and uh, they had somehow got a hold of a bunch of MiG fighters and they would dogfight the actual uh, MIGs that they were going to face. Prior to that, they had, they used, you know, other other planes that matched the characteristics of the MIGs as matched them as well as they could, and that's what they were using. But where did somehow, they get that data? Uh, they, it it was top secret. I had, I never heard about that until this week. Oh, I, I mean, I don't know, Dad. They went over it in the movie. I don't. I don't know how you can say you didn't know about that. You need, if I understand correctly, there was a plot plot mark in the movie that that, that they, this civilian lady they, came in with the knowledge for them to use. She didn't have the knowledge about being inverted. No, she didn't. She had to see the Polaroid for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, getting back to the movie. Sorry to interrupt. There is a question from the lovely Katie Cole. Um, she wants to know if he wore heels in the movie to make him look taller. You know, one of the things that I researched is there's a famous volleyball scene, right, in the movie. And uh, Justin and I were laughing because, um, you know, set designers and uh, wardrobe designers, they, they have inspiration, right? And it's famous that this movie um, took its look from um, – Justin, you might be able to help me more with this. You were, you were telling me about it more than, than I saw. It was just a quick article I read. But uh, apparently there was this uh, famous photographer that had created like a coffee table book. And it was uh, male erotica and the specifics of the male erotica were men in uniform or, you know, lack of uniform. And that was what they kind of modeled the characters after. And um, because they wanted the big ratings, well, they had to pay a lot for Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise was not cheap to come onto this movie. And um, so they needed an excuse to show off the bodies of all these young men. So they literally were like they, they were almost done filming the movie and they're going back over it with the studio executives and the test audiences. And they're like, we're missing something. I know what it is. Let's back up a truck full of sand, dump it out here, and film these guys playing volleyball for like an excruciatingly long, like eight minutes of the movie. Goose, <laughs> keep your shirt on. And the only one that has appropriate, the only one that doesn't need appropriate leggings for an impromptu volleyball tournament is Tom Cruise. He has to be in tight jeans. Everyone else can be in short. That is correct. Uh, but I actually looked up. Did they lower the nets for Tom Cruise? <laughs> of course they did. Um, in in fact, they, did. they really didn't. The close-up, the, the scenes with the spikes and the sets and everything were stunt doubles. So That's true. Uh, yeah, it wasn't actually Tom Cruise playing volleyball. Katie, I, 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 can't, I can't answer your question. Um, they didn't use um, high heels. They used uh, an old trick called apple boxes. <laughs> which is like uh, the old Hollywood folks would get apples and after a while they would pile these boxes up. So on every big shoot, they carry a ton of apple boxes, especially <laughs> if uh, 
if somebody in the shoot is vertically challenged. Like and then we had another question, the, the three most blatant inaccuracies in the movie. Well, we already talked about one. There was no actual Top Gun award. These people weren't competing. They were just trying to get better at what they did. Um, uh, who's that? Did compete, but who's uh, that guy from Hudsucker's Proxy? Is it? It's a Tom. Uh, the guy from Hudsucker's Proxy. He he was in Howard the Duck. Oh yeah, uh, I can't remember his name. I know who you're talking about. That that guy from he was in Hudsucker's Proxy. He was from. Uh, well, anyway, there was this. I don't know, C-list actor or whatever, probably more like a B-list actor. Uh, he was the boyfriend in um, in the he was the the new love interest from uh, High Fidelity. Why can't I remember his name? Mm. Anyway, he had to convince people that he was in Top Gun because mm -hmm. he played the Rio of the first guy who cracked, and then he played the Rio uh, for uh, Tom Cruise, where he's like, "Come on, Maverick, you got to go back, Maverick. Yeah. What are you Merlin. doing, Maverick?" And Merlin. like, yeah, yeah, there we go. Mm -hmm. But like. He was the worst character ever. I don't think any Rio would be like, no, come on, get that. back in the fight. Well, come there on. was that. There was, um, you know, uh, I talked to my dad about the whole buzz the tower thing. He's like, yeah, he, he would have got thrown out immediately. Like there, there's no tolerance for that kind of stuff. Well, that man wanted some butts for that. Yes. And he didn't get them, though. He got no butts. So the, the, uh, the character he was. Yeah. Any, any other uh, glaring inaccuracies? that stick out for that movie, just military-wise? Uh, no, I just I remember. I haven't seen it, like I said, in 10 years. That, that didn't bother me. You know, uh, the guys are cocky. And if they're not cocky, they don't make very good combat pilots. So, you know, there's a certain amount of uh, let stuff slide, let's say. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when you're even in peacetime, when you go out, uh, you're still losing pilots with accidents and strange things happen. So uh, it's very intense being a, a, a military pilot and you need a release when you're not doing that. So, you know, I understand that. Uh, the Navy kind of turns a blind eye to that, but they expect the pilots to, you know, that you are representing your branch of service. So don't screw up too bad, but uh, yeah, they, uh, uh, the one thing about uh, Top Gun, I just learned, I read something about it about, well, it's been a couple months. They actually filmed it in some of the bars they hung out in San Diego. They had a house that was on La Jolla, uh, the mm. beach of La Jolla, about 20 minutes away. Um, uh, I worked for uh, pilots. I worked in a personnel office in the uh, fleet. We trained all of the all of the, the uh, enlisted people that keep jets in the air. Uh, we trained all of them along with pilots as well. And um, uh, the, the officers we worked for, and I worked for, you know, there's quite a bit of rotation. I probably worked for six of them uh, in the office, uh, saw them every day. And they were just, hey, you do your job. He says, I don't know what you do, he says. You don't make trouble for us. You get things done and we'll get along just fine. So, you know, there were three of us in the office and, you know, two of us, somebody would stay there. The other two would go for lunch. And sometimes they went to La Jolla. You could, you could drive there, take a swim in the ocean. 
you know, take a sandwich with you <laughs> and get back to the office and put in your afternoon. Yeah. And they didn't care, you know, as, as long, long as, as we were doing our job. All right. Let me get back to this uh, slideshow you sent me. Okay. So, so I, I sadly, Dad, I know. Um, oops, I skipped. Is that the it? Is that, is that yeah, the we'll, we'll get we'll get to that. But I want to talk about uh, this this patch here because sadly, I've seen this my whole life because you have it on a whole lot of stuff, including the back of your <laughs> your car and your truck and you know everything you've had. Uh, I, I didn't really realize until putting this together when you sent me these photos that that says pacemaker and not peacemaker. It's a pacemaker, right? <laughs> pace. Sorry about that. Sorry about that. We don't that. have pacemakers on our chest. We set the pace. Yeah. yeah gotcha. And it's a panther because uh, the, the origin of VF-121 is it was uh, a combat squadron in Korea during the war. Wow. And that's the jet they flew. The jet they flew then was called, they were called panthers. So that's where mm. the panther comes from. Excellent. Well, let's get to this. This is the piece we were talking about, the building that became the office for the Top Gun program that was moved to its location for the fine bargain price of one case of Scotch whiskey. Yep. Yep. And that and that's proof. It's the it's the people that are doing work inside. It's not how fancy the building is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, you can have a beautiful building with air, you know, real air conditioning and windows and a view of the bay. But it's the people inside doing the work. That's that's the key. Well, well I got crazy stuff. Crazy. Was stuff. it easy to find pilots that wanted to sign up for this training? Because the uh, war was still going on, right? No, I. You know, they didn't. You know, nobody knew what was going on other than you know at the squadron and mm. you know all the pilots were from VF one twenty one. They didn't go hand pick them from other squadrons. They you know, and it was and what they designed was a four week course. That's what it was, four weeks. And uh, it grew longer and longer. It went to uh, uh, five weeks in the 80s, and it went nine weeks by the 1990s. It was five week, or uh, nine weeks. Um, but it's it worked very well, and it's still working very well, and we have some of the finest pilots in the world. Unbelievable. All right, so this is an interesting photo. Did you, is there a time on this photo? Do you, do you have a guess? I would say this is this is the first group that set it up. Yeah, so it's. Uh, Sorry for my lean in. I'm not. Uh, well, these are not prescriptions, so everything's very fuzzy to me. So. 1969. <laughs> oh wow! So that's from year one. Yeah, 19. I got I I got there probably about nine months before uh, Top Gun left our squadron, and they were their own separate command at the other end of the base when I got there. Hmm. So in beginning, it was just one squadron. Correct. And Correct. then eventually they started pulling in people from different squadrons. Right. It seemed, it seemed like to me that they were using it to train and then, you know, the people would graduate and they'd go off and, and, and teach people in other areas of the world. Uh, that's exactly what happened. Yeah. Uh, this, okay. picture, this picture here, the instructors are in the front row kneeling and, and I think those are the, they're, uh, Probably their first set of, yeah, it says 69. It's probably their first class, I would guess. So this, so in reality, Miramar is, or at least initially was to train the trainers. Uh, top Gun. Yes. Oh, train the trainers. So they would uh, they'd bring these guys in, they would train them, and then they would go and then train other people elsewhere. Or well, is that like what it turned into? 
Yeah, well, yeah, what happened was that uh, they went off to various, you know, 121 was a training squadron. They finished their training. They went back to the fleet. Uh, I mentioned before, there was a halt of the bombing in Vietnam for about three years. Mm -hmm. And in that three years, by the time they were finished, uh, they had at least uh, one top gun pilot in every uh, fighter squadron in the world, the Navy oh, fighters. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And they were one of the things that they told they that, that one of their requirements was they need to pass on this knowledge to the rest of their squadron mates, the other pilots, you know, so, you know, they would, you know, they learn a lot. They learn a lot how to fly a jet in combat. Did the A4, oh, that's interesting. Is that a MiG-15 or MiG-13? That's a, that's a MiG-17. Oh, geez. Yeah, that, that's oh, it has a radar. Has radar up front. Yep. Yep. Just that's, like that's the, a uh, great shot with the uh, the fire coming out of the afterburner back there. That's just a really nice shot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one telltale of an F four talking about exhaust. Uh, it took them about six years to figure out how to not have this big cloud of black smoke coming out from it. <laughs> this is a huge trail of black smoke that followed every F four. Until mm -hmm. they figured out that. So, Dad, you said you gave me that picture that we saw before with the crew just to kind of show the size of the uh, F-4. What, yeah. Is it like double the size of this make? I don't know exactly how long a, the MIG is. You know, if you look at the pilot there, it, I wouldn't say it's much longer than this one. Mm -hmm. um, but they're, they're a beast. The F-4s are a beast. They've got those two engines. They had twice the thrust of any other uh, fighter jet in the world at that time. Mm -hmm. um, it was fast. Um, it took a lot of uh, combat damage and kept flying. Um, and they were really, you said they were designed to, to take out bombers. So they were decided to fly out, was, take out the bomber, get back. Right. Uh, what did they... That's what it was designed for, but they did they they did a lot of uh, dropping of bombs too, <clears throat> a, a lot. They they actually could carry twice the load of a B seventeen. Oh, it's unbelievable! A B seventeen yeah, is huge. Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, but they that, didn't have the thrust that enough. That's what I was gonna say. It's just because of the the engine on those things. Could yeah. Just haul. Yeah. 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 yeah, one of the interesting thing about they had two engines, which is nice in case one goes out, you can still fly. Uh, but they had louvers on the back end, on the back end of the jet that when you're taking off from an aircraft carrier, they bend down and it gives them extra lift to get off hmm. the aircraft carrier. And they could, they couldn't, you know, half the carriers at the time couldn't have F4s because the decks weren't long enough. So the Navy right. had to have, yeah, they. From that point on, they built all of their carriers were longer than some of the Vietnam era ones. Well, you know, they had some left over from the Korean War. And I don't know mm -hmm. if there's any World War II ones left around by Vietnam. I don't know. Probably. Mm -hmm. So here's the F-14, made famous by, by Top Gun. And um, so one of the coolest things, now this was when I was growing up, this was my favorite plane, right? It has the dual thrusters. It's, it's a really slick looking thing. The yeah. wings could come in and out on my model. Oh. And I just thought that was the coolest thing in the world. What is the point of those wings and why don't we see more of that? Uh, swept wings are really good for speed, not so good for maneuvering. So when you get into a dogfight, fight, if, especially if you're fighting something like 
slower jets like they were seeing, uh, you know, their wings will come out more to the side and it makes them much more uh, maneuverable. They're for slower speeds. Nice, but you don't really see that anymore. I mean, this is really the only plane I can think of that has that design. Was it just, uh, they, the, they just became more, more specialized planes and they didn't need to do everything? Uh, we had the F-111 aardvark, right? Uh, Air Force had a few with swept wings. Well, the F-14 and the, uh, and the Warthog, the, the A-10, those are probably my two favorite planes of all time. Oh, yeah. They're good. I have to agree with you. Mm -hmm. So the F-4 was designed for shooting down bombers from a, from a vast distance. Were we ever able to figure out how to make it dogfight? The F-4? Yes. Yes. Yeah, they were good dogfighters once they were trained properly. Really? So yeah. they were able to take that big honking thing and have it compete against those light Soviet aircraft. They did a pretty good job. Yeah. Uh, it seems like one of their main advantages, like you said, is they could they could take a beating. They could take quite a few rounds from a machine gun before they uh, were in big, big trouble. So that probably helped them a lot. Yeah, they could take quite a bit of damage and keep flying. Uh, bef before Top Gun, the ratio, uh, the kill ratio uh, for every one U.S. Navy plane that was lost, uh, they took out like two and a half of uh, North Vietnamese. And then afterwards, after that bombing halt where they had like three years, the bombing halt was like three years. And that three years, they kept training more and more pilots how to dogfight. It was, it was like a 12 and a half to, to one. Wow. So is, this, is this Miramar here? Is this what we're looking at? Yeah. Yeah. This is Miramar. Um, our squadron, if, if you look at uh, this end of the runway, the second hangar in, uh, was 121, VF-121, and then the uh, school was behind, kind of next to it. Uh, that little trailer was there. Hmm. And when the first F-14 came in, which was 76, 77, the, oh, uh, the F-14 came into Miramar, just one, in a park to the, in the, in the uh, apron, in that other uh, that other hangar next to us, and everybody, it, it just went right through the squadron like that. He said, "Oh, there's an F-14 out there," which we'd all seen pictures and we've heard about it. But we've never actually seen one, and they must have had. I ran out there, of course, as did our whole office. The officers and <laughs> we all ran out to see it, and we got out there, and there's probably 200 people from our squadron standing around. And I tell you, and within 20 minutes, there was like 5,000 people there. At least oh just, my everybody had heard it. And everybody, everybody along the runway, all the hangers emptied, and everybody ran down to see. It was, it was amazing. Yeah. It was so, what, what were the primary differences between the A4 and the F15 or F14 Tomcat? Uh, well, Size is one thing. Uh, you know, I, I don't know a lot about the F-14. As far as speed, it looks like it's a lot faster. It very well could have been. Um, it's quite maneuverable with a swept wing. Had better avionics, I'm sure. You can only retrofit so much, I guess. 
Was it designed for the? Was it designed specifically for a dog fighting or fighter bomber? Fighter bomber. So yeah, it was kind of. It kind of took what like I that so essentially that's what a the A four turned into right. It was an interceptor, or for bombers or interceptor for Soviet bombers, uh-huh. repurposed to be a bomber and a fighter in Vietnam. And so that must be what influenced them to select the swept wing design for the F-14 so it could do both. A little or, bit of both, probably, yeah. All right, so what do we have here? What, what is this? Uh, that is a MiG-21, I believe. That's a slick-looking slick looking guy. Yeah, it's a MiG-21. Uh, it actually had a cannon and a couple missiles, and uh, it could fly about 1,300 miles per hour. Per hour. It's the fast, fastest one during Vietnam for the. Wow. North. So you you wrote in your show notes, Dad, that one of the things that uh, was it the A four that could do um, was it could outgain the other uh, the MIGs. It could go up another like ten thousand feet higher. Oh yeah. Than, than the enemy. So one of their favorite tricks was is they'd go up higher where it couldn't get followed and then swoop down and um, attack from above where where uh, it, it was really advantageous for them. Right, right. Uh, they always went out in a flight of two. It was called a flight. And one of them would just put it in... No, no, no. In my world, a flight is five. I don't know what they're talking about, a flight of two. A flight, a flight is five in my world. Okay. <laughs> a flight Cheers. of beers. Cheers. Yeah. <laughs> uh, one of them would go straight up. And I'm not sure... You know, I read about it in this book. And uh, if you're really interested, you've got you've got to get this book. It, it's a great read. The guy's a great author. Uh, it's the guy, it's uh, uh, Peterson, mm-hmm. one of Commander Peterson that uh, wrote the book and was the head of uh, 121. So it's right from the source. Oh, wow. Yeah, thank you yeah, for uh, saying the, the title. Uh, we, we do have some audio-only listeners, and I forget that sometimes. So oh, okay. when you're holding that up, that's Dan Peterson's Top Gun book. Right. Uh, so from... And remind us who Dan Peterson was again. He was the he was the guy that kicked off the academy. He was the guy that the that uh, Captain Alt picked him to create uh, the F one or uh, uh, Top Gun, hmm. and gave him no money, no money, <laughs> no directions, no facilities. Uh, put it all upon him to do, and uh, he did a fantastic job. Uh, he went on to be a squad, a, a captain of a squadron, and then he was uh, captain of an air wing. That's the guy that's in charge of every uh, plane that's on an aircraft carrier. And then he became, uh, I did not know this. This is one of the interesting things. After he was a wing commander, uh, he knew he was being pegged to be an, uh, an aircraft carrier captain. The very next assignment he got was uh, to be a replenishment ship, the ones that meet the aircraft carriers and the other ships in the middle of the ocean. Yeah. And they put lines, they put fuel lines uh, from the replenishment ship to refuel them, those that don't have nuclear reactors. But they give them food, mail, magazines, new movies, anything that you are going to be missing after you're out. If you're out to sea for six months, uh, they have to be replenished. Mm-hmm. So that's what they always do with people that are pegged to be captains in an aircraft carrier is they, they have one of these ships. Mm-hmm. Huh. And, and uh, there's a picture later on here. 
that shows a, a, a replenishment going on at sea and the aircraft carrier on one side and another big ship on the other side. And they so, do that in the worst weather. Mm -hmm. I mean, all the ships are doing this and they have to do it. I mean, you got to replenish. So, John, they have the cage where they would have like a guy kind of hold on to these, like uh, essentially the, the rims of a cage at the very top, they'd be like tied uh, like a string tied or something, like a, the rope would tie up there and you just kind of hold on like this as dudes pull you from one, one ship funny. to the other. I don't, mean to out, I don't mean to out my dad here, Justin, but my dad managed to do his entire Navy career without actually getting stationed out to sea. Nice. Well, that's not unusual. You know, it's like <laughs> everybody in the Air Force is supposed to be a pilot, right? Everybody right. in the Navy is supposed to be on a ship. Right. <laughs> there's, well, there's a lot of shore duty stations and a that's lot true. of overseas stations. So uh, this, this photo you sent me here is one of my, maybe my favorite photo that you sent over. Um, yeah, and this is a F four coming in for a landing on an aircraft carrier. It struck right. me how um, similar that design looks to the uh, the space shuttle. Hmm. Just well, just the way the wings are, and just kind of just just the whole thing just kind of really struck me as space shuttly. So I just thought it was a really cool photo. Well, I think an F four would be more fun to fly than a space shuttle. Probably, yeah, yeah. I can see that. I put this in here because they actually did a stress test study with pilots during Vietnam. And they found out their stress level of landing on the aircraft carrier was higher than their stress level in combat. Oh, wow. You're talking about like physical, like stress tests, like their their blood pressure, their pulse. Heartbeat, yeah. 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 Well, they have, they have to land at full speed in case they make a mistake. That's right, because if they don't, if they don't catch the wire, they call them bolters and they, mm -hmm. they just, they have to punch it before they hit that that uh, wire, because if, if they missed the wire, they wouldn't have enough speed to take off again. Mm -hmm. So now this is a this is a nice shot. It gives you some idea how small that aircraft carrier is looking when you're trying to find it. But now imagine doing this at night in a thunderstorm, mm -hmm. and you can't see. And there's and the boats doing this. And the boats yeah. not only doing this, but doing up and down yeah. and side to side. It's it's the most amazing skill that I could think of. I, I I name something that would be harder to do. I, I don't know what it would be. Incredible. Yeah, nice shot of that. And that's why Navy pilots are known as aviators and not pilots, because mm -hmm. they have a they require a skill set greater than that of your average pilot. And and here's your is this your supply picture you were talking about? Yeah, the, the supply ships in the middle. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh he had that command, and then he was the uh, captain of the USS Ranger. Wow! After this, I don't know what that other ship is there. It looks like a, a, a destroyer, but I can't escort. Tell. Maybe destroyer escort. It has a helicopter pad on it. Hmm. Yeah, which makes me think that it's not a frigate. Well, I don't know. I don't okay. know. Yeah, hmm. might it's be a destroyer. I don't know, here. Here. A couple nice pictures Oof. of there again. Yeah. Here's that yeah. kind of similar to the one before, but yeah, you were telling me that you put this in just to really kind of give a scope for how large that that jet was. Well, yeah, and I'm in this picture, so I put. Oh, it are you? Yeah. Where are I you? Had, see, when I was in the Navy, they called the the ladies in front. They call them waves, which I don't remember what that stands for. Women's something. I don't. I don't remember what waves stand for, but. Uh, uh, yeah, that's me Perfect. with uh, 
between the two ladies in the front on the left side of the picture with the mustache back. yes excellent mustache yeah and notice my hat i hated the dixie cups they never look good on my head they I don't look good on anybody's cup. head yeah. when they allowed us uh peons you know the e5s to wear uh, a hat like the chiefs had i said mm -hmm. yeah I, w I went and bought it before i could actually wear <laughs> yeah. it because they had a have it. You're ready. yeah that's funny. Uh, a funny mustache story. I don't really remember my dad with a mustache, but he had a mustache for much of his life uh, after yeah. high school and maybe maybe during high school. I don't know. But no. uh, I, I do remember a tale that my mother told me that when my dad shaved it off in the what mid to late 80s, um, that it was uh, two or three days before she finally looked at him and went, what happened to your mustache? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you don't look at stuff that no. you're familiar with. You have this mental image of it. So mm -hmm. hey, that happens. That's pretty funny. No, pretty I, uh, I, I grew a mustache when I started teaching. I was at the middle school, and I was going through the lunch line, and I asked for an extra piece of chicken like the teacher next to me, ahead of me. They, they gave teachers an extra piece of chicken in the cafeteria, and I asked for one. And, said, and she said, well, that's just for teachers, not for students. This is a <laughs> middle school. She thought I was a middle school student. <laughs> that's funny. I went home and I told Nancy, I'm growing my mustache back. Yeah. Little story. If, if I got a free piece of chicken for lunch, I'm, I'm growing a mustache. That's true. That's what it takes. Uh, so here's a patch here that says the Fighter Weapons School. That was the official name of the school, wasn't it? It was. It, was. it wasn't actually the Top Gun Academy. That's a nickname, and they still call it uh, Top Gun, but it's no, it's Navy, Fight, Navy Fighter Weapons School. Is the official name. It's not as uh, off the tongue as Top Gun. Pardon? That, that doesn't roll off the tongue like Top Gun. Well, no. I love Top Gun. Yeah. So here's a copy of that book that he's talking yeah. about. If you're really interested in Top Gun, Dan Peterson, founder of the Top Gun program, Top Gun, national bestseller. Definitely uh, go check it out. Do, please. It's a great, great read. All right. You sent me a couple of bonus photos. So what do we got here? That's not the oh, Enterprise. Uh, yeah, this is one of our ships on the – that's the Enterprise, right? I don't think so. It's, no, it's, it's 65, I think, is the Enterprise. Oh, okay. Well, it's one of the nuclear ones, isn't it? They had that kind of peculiar uh, – I got to look it up. I'm looking it up right now. It's the Constellation, which okay. was – I think that was the last Kitty Hawk supercarrier, and that oh. was the last non-nuclear aircraft carrier that we built. It was a supercarrier that had uh, – uh, two two decks, or not decks, but two uh, two uh, angles on the on the light deck. All right. When I, when I repost this late later, Katie says this is the best quote of the night. If I get a free piece of chicken, I'm growing a mustache. So, uh, <laughs> when I repost this on all the social network, that's the quote I'm including by Mr. Justin Raditz right there. <laughs> Next time I come over, Katie, I'm going to bring a bucket of fried chicken for you. I want to see that mustache. <laughs> oh, all right. There you go, Katie. All right. You're on the clock. All right. Next one here. Some more of the A4 there. Yep. Another couple pictures. Well, so that's kind of, this, that's, that's neat. This one is actually belonged to our department. This hmm. plane did not fly. This is where they train the, all of the, all of the various enlisted ratings <laughs> that keep these things flying. Mm -hmm. That was our main job. So we trained everybody from plane captains, radar specialists, mechanics, jet engines, mm -hmm. the whole thing. It just takes 
a boatload of people to keep those mm -hmm. planes flying. I, tell I you. mean, and how much of those planes cost? I mean, those planes are multiple million dollars, right? Uh, shoot, I don't know. On the movie, they called the, the the Tomcat a $30 million plane. That's uh, probably. Which, true. of course, is a bargain now because the new planes that for no apparent reason are some, you know, billion dollar. They have 35. That's a whole nother topic to talk about the modern planes that are unnecessary. Well, I will say this. I found this to be poetic justice. The 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 Soviet planes depicted in Top Gun were, I believe, T-5 Tiger trainers, which the T-5 was the basis for the F-18, which is what eventually replaced the Tomcat. So the bad guy jets... In top, in top Gun, eventually, uh, were a big part in replacing the Tomcat later on, and now we have the Super Tomcat, which most modern Navy pilots or aviators actually compared the Super Hornet to the F four. Like the Super Hornet is now the new modern F four, just a beefed up uh, brick of a plane that can that can go very fast, carry a bunch of stuff, but is just huge and if like i remember i remember correctly dad speaking of it takes a whole team uh, uncle terry was a uh, uh, air force but a, a jet engine mechanic yes yeah yeah he was with the f4 squadrons during the war he was stationed in thailand during Ooh. the war for a while and uh he said you know every once in a while he'd come back ones would come back with battle damage and of course some didn't come back um so, but he was, he was fortunate to be in Thailand. My older brother, Larry, your uncle, uh, you know, he was in the army. He was in Korea, but not during mm -hmm. the war. He was during the Vietnam war, but not during the Korean war. So mm -hmm. I think all three of us kind of lucked out. So there you go. You were in the Navy. Terry was in the air force. Larry was in the uh, army, which yeah, uh, yes, the brother's names are Barry, Larry and Terry. And it's not Bartholomew, Terrence and Lawrence. It is Barry, Larry and Terry. Yeah. Easy to remember. Yeah. It is indeed. And then Grandpa, of course, a Merchant Marine. He was a Merchant Marine. Yep. Mm -hmm. he, did, uh, he did five crossings during World War II. And if you want to see uh, a little bit into his life, you can watch that uh, Tom Cruise movie on uh, Apple TV, which yeah. I thought was spectacular. What was it called? Not, not Tom Cruise. Not Tom Cruise. I'm sorry. Tom Hanks. I, I got no, Tom Hanks. Cruise on the blind here. Yeah. Dad, went, Dad was on the Merman's run. That was his last one. Mm -hmm. They brought home a they brought home a husky. Ah. And, uh, him and his pal snuck on out. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> and uh they 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 got it back, but his friend, his best friend in the merchant marines lived in Wisconsin and he took the dog. And before I was born, they were uh his friend and his uh, his friend and his family were driving back across the UP and somebody came came across the center line and hit him and killed them all. Oh no. That's so kind of sad. I never yeah. met him before I was born. Hmm. So, but yeah, he, he, I only ever got dad to talk about the war twice. Hmm. And he had friends in town that uh, were in the war and were in combat. And, you know, they just didn't want to talk about it and they didn't. So I, uh, you know, like I heard more about the weather than yeah. other stuff. Hmm. Like this. He saw oh, some Russian in a bar in Murmansk blow his brains out playing roulette. Oh, Russian man. roulette. There's that not much else. Not a lot else to do out there. That's for sure. Nah. Well, we're getting close to the end here, gentlemen. We've been on for a solid hour. Um, this is a really nice photo here, man. This is this is a, a beautiful picture. 
Oh, this is not. This is San Diego. That's SeaWorld, uh, right above the the uh, Rio. That's mm -hmm. SeaWorld, and then uh, you can see Mission Bay and North Island in front of the the jet. Mm -hmm. There's another naval base right downtown where the carriers come in. Yeah, I thought that was a nice shot. Uh, if anybody's listening, if you go to um, the the comment section where you're at, uh, I've put the link into the broadcast. If anybody's listening and wants to jump on and give us a virtual cheers here in a few moments, I'll bring you on and say hello when we uh, finish up. So go check that out. I put it in the comments. All right. Let's see. We got one more picture or is that was the last one? Oh, nope. That was the last one. Yeah. So, uh, well, thanks, guys. Uh, any parting thoughts? Justin, what, what, what do we leave out that you wanted to touch on? Anything? I just want to give a shout out to our fallen compadre, Pete, who's recovering from uh, some medical stuff right now, but he'll be oh, joining Absolutely. Us. Yeah, co-host Pete Kehoe and, of course, the um, creator of our theme song. Yes. Uh, had hip replacement, so he uh, missed our show this week, but... Um, We'll be back in two weeks. Uh, what are we doing in two weeks? Two weeks is oh, Greta. Greta from Maker's Mark is joining wow. us. And uh, we are going to talk. Uh, yes, sir. Two weeks. Two mm -hmm. weeks. Uh, Greta from Maker's Mark is going to come on and we're going to chat a little Maker's Mark. And um, uh, I've had some wonderful experiences down on their farm. And she's going to talk about that. She's also a, a trained anthropologist, Justin. So, yes. uh, and her specialty is uh, wheat and barley, and grain. So she's going to tell us all about the history of what makes whiskey. It's going to be good. I can't wait. So that'll be the 29th of March, 8.30 p.m. Eastern, right here on ilogicmedia.com. And uh, hopefully Pete will be back for that one. So I wish him well. I like it. Dad, any final parting thoughts on the Top Gun program? Uh, no. Can I show you my shirt? Yes. Yes, please do. Yeah! Ah, very nice. Yeah, one of those. That little oh, phantom guy, he was that. all over our squadron. He was on every door. <laughs> uh, Melissa is asking if we're going to make a new event for the upcoming episode. Of course we will. So keep an eye out for that at iLogic's Facebook page. And uh, everywhere that we uh, post our stuff, it'll be there. Fear not. Uh, and then uh, two weeks after the 29th, I believe that is the 12th or so of April, we will have our friend Rachel Burns on, a, a, a Jeopardy vet who got to be on the show uh, just before Alex passed away. She'll be on to talk about Nixon with us. I know you're a big Nixon uh, history fan, Justin. And uh, yep. Dad, I'm sure you'll be watching. You enjoy that period of history. I like the history. Don't like the man. Ah, yeah, well, you know. my dad is a retired uh, government teacher, so he, he likes these topics. So that'll be fun. I'll be watching. That's right. And then uh, two weeks after that, so we're talking about whatever that is, um, we're going to do the Mormon King of Beaver Island. Yeah, that'll be fun. It's a very strange story. It's a it's bizarre. very strange. I would love to tell you how they all end up, which is even more bizarre, but uh, you'll have to wait. Yeah, you'll have to wait for that episode. And uh, we're going to get more and more. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover, if you want us to talk more about whiskey, if you want us to talk more about history, we can do them both. We can do either. And uh, speaking of that, uh, we have to continue the tease because I can't wait because I've had this bottle for a while. But I have a bottle of 13-year aged whiskey from our friends at Valentine in Detroit called Mayor Pingree. Um, and so we have found us a Mayor Pingree expert. Um and a lady named Mickey Lyons, and uh, she does a show on history and drinks in the city of Detroit, and she wrote a book, 
And part of that book had the topic of Mayor Pingree in his uh, era of um, being the mayor of Detroit, I believe at the turn of the century, right? 1900, early 1900s. Mm-hmm. Yep. So right, right. I, think, I think he was involved at the end of the uh, Civil War. So, yeah, um, it'll be a very interesting story there as well. So uh, I am uh, John with me, of course, my host, Justin, special guest, Barry. Uh, we Barry appreciate everyone. Uh, it looks like nobody is joining us for our virtual cheer. So um, good seeing you, Joel. So, yeah. So we will uh, we'll check you guys out in uh, two weeks. We'll see you then. Cheers. 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 Thank you.